blessed, and I put the emphasis on blessed to be a part of this um, conference a couple of weeks ago, and and I talked to a few people individually about it um, with a bunch of second generation um, leaders um, looking forward to it. And my assignment for the, one of my assignments for that conference was to talk about the essentials of um, the gospel, because the theme was the essentials of a second ministry, uh, second generation ministry. Um, so what do we do? And we said, well, you know what, I think that one of the essentials is we, we need to know what the gospel is. We have to start from the gospel. One of my assignments was the essentials of the gospel um, within two parts, defining the gospel and defining the hallmarks of the gospel. And it occurred to me as I'm preparing for this and as I'm actually presenting it, we've never really talked about it here in this context. Um, if we're going to talk about potentially what the Lord is doing in our midst, being a local body of Christ, and, and we have to be established on the gospel. We have to be founded on the gospel. We have to have the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of it. And we've kind of been seeing there. And then what is the hallmark of the gospel? And as I'm um, as I'm, as I was thinking about today, I think it's a better, no other better occasion than such a small gathering to talk about what the hallmarks of the gospel actually are and what we need to consider as essentials. Because these are the essential hallmarks of the gospel that we need to have if we were to continue in this fellowship, in this atmosphere, in this kind of, in the, in the direction that the Lord is propelling us to go um, in this season of our, our lives. Um, if we're going to be a gospel-preaching church, we need to understand what the hallmarks of the gospel are. And um, I wanted to go through those seven hallmarks which I believe to be biblical, um, and I'll make my case for it from the Word of God. Um, but before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for just filling our time together in awe and adoration of your name, glorifying your sovereignty honoring your son, Jesus Christ, who saves us, who sanctifies us, who brings us all together under his banner, gives us his spirit so that we may share this fellowship of love with one another. So as we continue to look into your marvelous word, we ask you, Lord, to be with us to open our eyes to the truth of your word, to convict us of the reality of its power so that we may be continued, continually be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask you this and we give you this time in the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
how many people know who C.H. Spurgeon is? Right? Yeah, most people in here. So he's the prince of preachers. At least he's known. He, he's known as the prince of preachers. Um, he said this once in a sermon. He said, to preach the gospel is to state every doctrine contained in God's word and to give every truth its proper prominence. Again, I say it, to preach the gospel is to state every doctrine contained in God's word and to give every truth its proper prominence. The point that he's trying to make is we can't say that we preach the full gospel and shave off certain things that we don't like about the gospel and put more prominence about one area of doctrine than the other. Maybe it's the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. We don't want to talk about that. But let's talk about the doctrine of providence or the doctrine of uh, salvation. Let's talk about that. Let's put that in evangelism. Let's talk about that. But let's not talk about sanctification and holiness and those things. But if we're going to preach the gospel, if we say we're doing that, we have to do so by giving each truth that we find in God's word its proper prominence. So with that in mind, I just want to quickly give you the hallmarks of the gospel and in terms of the, the um, outlines. I think it's already up there. This is the seven... Um, the, the, the seven, the, there you go, we go, and now we're cooking with oil, um, Crisco with that. Uh, <laughs> um, the, these are going to be the seven hallmarks of the gospel that we I want to quickly take a look at this afternoon, and I put the emphasis on quickly, so just let me know if I don't quickly say what I need to say, right? Um, so we are going to talk about the simplicity of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel, the, the um, faith and repentance and good works, assurance, and its exclusivity uh, um, is how we're going to look at it. One by one, we're going to quickly run through a few scriptures uh, and, and kind of make the case for it. But what exactly is a hallmark? What exactly is a hallmark? I want to give you a quick definition. Have you heard of the whole the word hallmark and wondered where that word came from? So I'm, if, even if you didn't wonder, I'm going to give you the, uh, the definition anyways. Too bad. This is actually in 1300, and the 1300 uh, uh, king of England at the time um, decided that he wanted to have this um, jewelry uh, the silver and uh, the gold that were being sold in the marketplace, um, he actually enacted a statute requiring that all silver articles must be met the sterling silver standard, which is 92.5% pure silver. And the way that you knew that it actually passed that standard is it had to go to a hall of a bunch of jewelers that were meeting in a hall and they had this little signature and they, they had a little marker and they marked the back of it. You get the hallmark? That's where the coin hallmark was actually first invented or the term hallmark was coined because it was a hall of jewelers marking some silver. The reason I say that is because the reason why he did that is 
is because they wanted to know the mark of the quality. So if we're going to be a gospel-preaching church, a gospel-believing church, we need to have, we also need to have this sense of quality in the same way there's, there's some unique features of biblical, the biblical gospel that are essential for us to consider. First one being, the gospel is so simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is essentially simple. Now don't hear me say that it's easy to believe, but it's very simple in its approach. It's so simple that listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, as he reminds the church in Corinth, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or, or wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. He didn't use no high wording or any kind of complex ideology or principle. He didn't come with an oratory skill that, that surpasses everybody. And he didn't put a whole bunch of philosophical jargon. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with superiority of word or wisdom or proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you it is the simplicity, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Very simple. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my words and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. So again, the gospel, first hallmark, is that it's so simple. There's no need to be understood by some religious elites that like the super Christians are the ones that actually get the gospel or like some, something special inherently in us. No, it's so simple. Gospel is not some lofty, unidentifiable message that can only be understood by the elites of society or elite groups or individuals. It's simple. As we consider his... This simplicity of the gospel, however, we need to be weary of two pitfalls. Two things to avoid as we consider simplicity. One is don't oversimplify it. Two is don't overcomplicate it, right? <laughs> Sometimes we make it so complex and, you know, there's an order of salutis. The regeneration comes before Faith. No, faith comes before regeneration. I'm like, what are you talking about, Manny? I'm lost. I'm just trying to get saved. I'm overcomplicating it. Or I can just be like, oh, yeah, just come as you are and stay as you are. Jesus loves you unconditionally. No matter what you do, you, are, you have free grace. And that's oversimplifying it. So we need to be wary of those two pitfalls which will lead you to be antinomian, which is saying, this, hey, since Jesus died for me, I can just do whatever I want to. And whenever I get on the other side of this life, I can just show that get out of free jail card that says he's a Christian. And I don't have to live a sanctified life. Or be so legalist to the point where it's like, okay, now what did you do to deserve this? And I've mentioned this I'm sure you've seen this clip by now because I've mentioned this so many times. Alistair Begg's uh, presentation of the gospel 
or uh, his, his sermon, um, he talks about the thief on the cross when Jesus was being crucified. After his death, he goes to heaven and the angel comes and he talks to him. And I'm butchering this illustration, but I've given it enough, um, enough reference, to, uh, reference to it so that you can go look at it in the original context, right? So he goes and the angel says, hey, why, why are you here? Tell me about uh, sanctification or salvation by faith alone. Do you know? Do you know the five solas? Like, what are you talking about? I don't know no five solas. He's like, okay. When did you get baptized? I didn't get baptized. What are you talking about? Baptized? What is baptism, anyways? And he keeps on asking these questions that a legalist would ask, and he says, he gets frustrated and goes. And calls the supervisor angel. The supervisor angel comes in and he asks a series of questions. And the guy's like looking at him like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about, but I'm here. So finally, the supervisor angel gets frustrated and says, then on what basis are you here? And the guy answers, the man in the middle cross says I could. Very simple. And Jesus says, you're saved. That's simple. You're saved. So the pitfalls to avoid is the antinomianism and the legalism that's, that puts that seems to put, okay, if you do this and you do this and you do this, then you're saved. It's not that complicated. You don't have to jump through hoops to get there. The gospel is very, very simple. Not easy to believe, but very simple nonetheless. Secondly, it's the clarity of the gospel. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ illumines the heart of the believer by the Spirit, by the Spirit and the Word. Right? The terms of the good news are clearly presented in the Scripture. That's what I mean by cl clarity. The terms of the gospel are clearly presented in Scripture. God didn't hide the terms of the gospel, the terms of salvation, he didn't use any kind of bait and switch or like you only find out when you get there. It's very clearly presented because God is not a God of confusion, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. Christ, who is the centerpiece of the gospel, came into the world as the true light. John 1. Verses 9 through 13, listen to what John says. There was the true light which coming into this world enlightens everyone. What does light do? It allows you to see things clearly. There's no kind of shadow that covers Christ. He comes in, into the world as the light to enlighten everyone. He was in this world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who are his own did not receive him. Again, you see the terms here. But as many as received him, here are the terms, to them he gave them the right to become children of God. Doesn't get any clearer than that. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to, be ch to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name 
who were born not of blood, and not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the terms of the gospel clearly put, clearly presented in Scripture by the Word and by the Spirit, born of God, it's right there. The gospel is clear. And we need to resist the temptation to fall for the ideology that God is somehow veiled from us. If we don't do the right things, if we don't have the right prayer, if we don't have the right lifestyle, we don't, we don't, we have this idea of putting a veil in front of us. This is, whatever is, needs to be known of God is clearly seen. Right? About creation. Right? Psalm 19, verse, the first six verses. The psalmist David tells us, hey, the heavens declare the glory of God. You can't miss. If you see the sunlight, I mean the, sun, the sunrise and the sunset, you can't miss God. And, and Paul echoes this in, in Romans 1, 19 and 20, where he says, whatever needs to be known of God is divine attributes, his invisible attributes, his divine power. It's being clear by what is made so no one can make an excuse. So we need to resist that temptation that we sometimes have to say the gospel is not clear enough. The gospel is clear. So if we see the gospel in its simplicity, and if we see the gospel in its clarity, our response is what? Faith. That's the third hallmark. We need to receive it. And as much as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe. So we receive the gospel in faith. That's the third hallmark. Now we have... So when we talk about faith, I want to give us what it's not and what it is. Faith is not this inherent quality that we have in our hearts. Like I don't get born with a level of faith that somebody else out there doesn't have. Right? That's not an inherent quality that we are born with. <clears throat> faith is not works. We'll talk about that in a little bit more in more detail. <clears throat> but faith is not works. It's not something that we present to God. We don't present our faith to God as something to be considered. Look, God, look how much faith I have in your son, Jesus. So now consider me saved, please. Let's make this trade. I'll give you your faith. You give me eternal life. I give you my faith. You give me eternal life. That's not, not sense. Faith is not works or any merit to convince God. Because there is a notion where we kind of get to, uh, to see faith in that way, right? It's like, oh, it's because I have faith that I'm saved. Like, nah, the, the whole notion of that uh, sermon that I told you by Alistair Big is actually, it's, it's not a first, um, first person singular verb that saves you. It's a second person singular verb. No, third person singular. Why are you saved? Because I believed. That has a notion of, they, I might be think, thinking that my faith is some kind of merit. 
That's not what the thief said. Because he said I could come. Right? So faith is not something inherent that's in us. It's not works. It's not merit that we present to God and we exchange it for salvation. But what it actually is, it's a gift. It is completely a gift. I'm looking at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, talking about our salvation, but God being rich, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of the grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's, here's the point that I want to emphasize. By grace you have been saved through faith. You are saved by grace through faith. And this, what is the this that he's talking about? The faith that preceded it. And this... <clears throat> Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We have to know that. The reason why we believe is because God was gracious enough to give us the gift of faith. Not of works, so that no one may boast. Can you see how easy that could be? To think about how, how it would propel my, your self-pride and my self-pride. If I, if I thought I had more faith than the next guy and that's why God saved me, I can just walk around with my nose turned up at somebody and just say, hey, man, you just need to have more faith. Then it becomes about me. Not God needs to have more grace on me. Not because God loved me so much. God loves you so much. That's not the gospel. If I'm saying that it's because of my faith that I'm saved. It's not a hallmark of the gospel. So that essential piece of faith, an essential hallmark of faith also needs to be present in the gospel. The gospel that is simply, clearly with childlike, not childish faith, but a childlike trust in Christ. <coughs> Number four, right? That faith is always coupled by repentance. In Mark's recollection of the, the ministry and the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he starts his ministry after he gets baptized by proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the Lord, uh, the good news of the kingdom of God by saying, repent and believe. So faith and repentance are coupled together. Just like faith, repentance is not just an I'm sorry. It's not saying I'm re I really, 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 really feel bad about the decisions that I've made or the sins that I've committed. I mean, you can genuinely even say that. But that's not enough. We see in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, <laughs> the writer of Hebrews gives us this this illustration of the repentance that Esau wasn't granted, even though he sought after it 
in tears. Remember Esau? He loves lentils. All right? I don't know. They got lentils of kava, right? And they didn't have kava then. He sells his birthright for a bowl of lentils. And then he wanted to get it back, and he really sought repentance. I really, really mean it. That's not enough. So when we think of repentance, it's more than I'm sorry. But it's a simultaneous act of that understanding of that need for confessing sin. But also there's the simultaneous act of realization, stopping, turning, going, uh, persevering. Right? And this was very well illustrated in our Bible study on our road trip to truth. When we talked about repentance, he gave another illustration, which I'm going to butcher like I did the last one, where he's talking about if we get in a car and my friend and I decide that we want to go down to the beach in Florida and I start driving north instead of driving south from where we are, right? I start driving north and as we go farther and farther, we start seeing signs that say, welcome to Massachusetts, welcome to Maine. And then, you know, all the northeastern states. And then next thing you know, you see a sign that says, welcome to Canada. And then instead of seeing sand and ocean, you start seeing snow falling. And you look to your friend and you're like, hey, you know where you're going? Like, yeah, we're going to the beach. First, we need, that friend needs to realize, if I'm driving, I need to realize that I'm going the wrong way. But just realizing that is not enough, is it? So you're going the wrong way. Oh, okay, cool. And I keep going north. And it's dark at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's not enough. What do I need to do? I need to stop driving north. But stopping is not, is not enough either. Because I'm still facing north. I need to turn around. And face south and then start driving south and don't stop until I get to the beach down in Florida. That's the full picture of repentance. That's the hallmark of the gospel that is coupled with that faith, that's ch that childlike faith that has been clearly given to us. And it's very simple and at its core. Fifthly. We need to have good works. That's a hallmark of the gospel. Good works. It's not the root of the gospel, but it's the fruit of the gospel. Right? You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is not alone. That's a quote from Martin Luther. You're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is not alone. And he has good company. As James, brother of our Lord, puts it in James chapter 2, verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's where we get that famous verse 
faith without works is dead. So if we, go, if we are going to receive the gospel in its simplicity and see clearly and we receive it in faith and repentance, could works follow? Good works follow. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Here's why we are saved. In verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That is why God saves you. For good works that was prepared beforehand so that you can walk in them. So that hallmark also needs to be a part of our gospel. Two more left. Assurance is also a hallmark of the gospel, which, in talking to most people, this is one of the common causes of anxiety in, in believers. Do I have assurance in my faith in Christ? How do I know that I am saved as I continue to struggle with sin? As I continue to struggle with moments of, or even seasons of backsliding? How can I actually be certain that I am saved? And most of us struggle with that. Ah, you can't be once saved, always saved. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't be, you can't lose your salvation. And we get in all in this theological arguments and conversations. And it becomes a cause of anxiety in believers. But when I say the gospel is marked by assurance, that mark is tied to the essential nature of the owner of the gospel. Who owns the gospel? Who owns your salvation? Do you own your salvation? If that's what you think, that you somehow, by, by your faith or by your good works or by your church attendance, somehow became a Christian, a believer, and you got saved by that, then I can see how easy that is for you to, th- to think, okay, I didn't necessarily, so if my faith level drops from full to three-quarter tank, then I'm, I'm in danger. So a half tank, hey man, I, I need to find some more faith somewhere. Uh, and then if it goes on E, then I've lost it. That's it. I'm out of it. Because your faith is the owner of that assurance, but uh, of the gospel. But the owner of the gospel is God himself. God is the one who saves. God is the one who owns salvation. So God's faithfulness is the cause for our assurance, not our own. Not our performance, not how well we have been following our reading plan that we, we at the outset, by the way, shameless plug, right? Brow beating time, yeah? Everybody's behind. I just caught up 18 days in, two, in, in like two and a half hours yesterday, so don't... Yeah, so don't feel bad. It's possible. All right? If you're behind 36, just 
four, four hours. That's all it is. You got it. You can do it. Not by, by how well you're following your reading plan. Not your performance gives you assurance. Right? The Galatians actually had the same kind of issue. And Paul tells them in Galatians 3, 1, verses 1, uh, 1, 2, 3, he tells them, oh foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who tricked you? Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. You've seen the gospel clearly. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you receive salvation? By going and taking your wallet and saying, here's my faith, give me, give me salvation? By keeping the Ten Commandments really, really well. That's not how you received it. You heard it and you believed it. If that's how you received it, this is, Paul, this is Paul's argument, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If God started this whole thing as a gift, are you going to try to perfect it by your own works? That's why it's so important to understand who the owner of the gospel is as we consider this hallmark of the assurance of the gospel, the assurance that we have. And we need to trust in God's promises because He's faithful. We need to trust the gospel. Um, um, the, the, we need to trust God's promises when He says things like, He who begun a good work will bring it to completion. Or when he says, he who calls, is, who he calls you is faithful and will do it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Or when Paul puts it in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of God? Death? Life? Angels? Demons? What, what can separate us from this love of God? We need to trust God's promises because the assurance is tied to who He is, not our performance. It does not take us away from the good works. That's why I put good works before, before assurance. Good works is why we're there, and it's, it needs to be present as a, as a fruit, not as a root. Lastly, the gospel is exclusive. That's the last hallmark. That's the trigger word in the age of diversity and inclusion, right? That's our culture. In the age of diversity and inclusion, you hear the word exclusion, and you're like, yo, I'm triggered, man. Canceled. Good thing I don't have no um, social media. I hope, I hope this makes it on um, our... Um, this, this thing is recording, right? <laughs> I hope our podcast don't get kicked off of Apple Podcasts. But the gospel is exclusive. Don't fall for the temptation to think that the gospel does not have an exclusive message with a condition to be met. What is the succinct and clear definition of the gospel? If you ever want to know where, where to find it, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is 
because it is the it that it's referring to is the gospel that he's not ashamed of because it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe to the Jew first and then to the Greek so there's, there is inclusion and diversity in that but there's also a conditional clause there to those who believe. Do you know that when, the, when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, at the same time the implication is to those who don't believe, then it's not a power of God for salvation. It's excluding the unbelievers simultaneously. So the, the gospel has an exclusivity, that means putting on means putting off. Right? Those two terms are always together. Put on the old, uh, no, don't put on the old self. <laughs> put on the new self and put off the old. Right? So as you're putting off the old self, you're putting on the new. There is a level of exclusivity there. Is no one means, in the Greek, no one. When Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when Jesus says, not my words, Jesus' words, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one means no one. No one is a very exclusive language. How are we saying now, we're not using this as a stumbling block or to build a wall to disqualify people from coming to know Christ and to receive the gospel because the gospel is so simple, so clear, the terms are there. And it just needs a, a childlike faith and true repentance, which leads to good fruits and good works. And we can be assured that it's not us who saves ourselves to do so, yet Christ is exclusive. We can't serve Christ and the world. You can't serve God and money. They are mutually exclusive. You can't receive Christ and faith and still remain in sin. There's no such thing as any kind of thing that you put any kind of adjective in in front that, is, that does not biblically align and then put a Christian behind it. I am a carnal Christian. I am a murdering Christian. That sounds like, what, what are you talking about? There is a level of exclusivity when you come to Christ, you put off the old self and you put on the new. The old has passed away and you are now a new creation. There's an exclusivity about the gospel. And these are the seven hallmarks that I wanted us to, to take a look at as we consider our gathering, as we gather together and have fellowship and we love one, one another and we, we talk about this, this vision that the Lord has for, for our congregation and where He's taking us. This is where it's founded on. These hallmarks need to be present in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your simple gospel that you so clearly, with no shadow or with no kind of veil, 
revealed to us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for giving us the gift of faith to receive it with repentance so that we may do the good works that you have for us. Lord, thank you for continuing to reassure us that this is your gospel, this is your salvation that you have bestowed upon us and you are faithful to keep us to the end. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we ask that you continue to give us the strength, the wisdom, and the grace by the power of your Spirit to continue to put off the old self and to put on the new, to help us to get sanctified as we walk closer to the Lord Jesus Christ so that your name can be glorified, his name can be honored, and your spirit can work in and among us. Lord, as we pray this prayer for us who are believers in our midst, Lord, we also want to pray for those that are that have yet to come to this knowledge of this truth, a simple, clear gospel, this exclusive message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the courage, give us the wisdom, give us the platform even to proclaim this gospel to the world, and to bring those who, would, who you would save to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they may receive him in faith and repentance and have the assurance of salvation in their heart. Lord, we ask you and we trust that you would do this for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.